All right, good morning, everybody. Good morning. This morning, we'll be working our way through Psalms 95, 96, and 97. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, we'll work our way through that. Um, next week is our potluck. I think we have a slide for that, but maybe not. And then uh, that'll be after second service. I think we're having some soups of some kind, so bring something that goes along with that. Uh, chicken noodle and chili, so join us for that after second service. And then I think that's it for things coming up, right? Nothing else? Oh, Wes Bentley. He's coming from Far Reaching Ministries. Uh, we missed him last time he came through, but February 19th he'll be sharing at both services, and uh, he's with Far Reaching. You can look it up online and look at his ministry in Africa, and it's an amazing ministry. Been doing it for decades, and very, uh, uh, very blessed. And uh, he gets into some intense stuff. He's got a lot of CIA guys working for him and a lot of special forces guys working with him. And it's really interesting to see how all those guys, born again believers, ministering in a really tough part of the tough part of the world. So I think he'll enjoy that. And is there anything else? Is that it? Great. Let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word, the opportunity to spend time to sing to you, to worship you as this uh, Psalms today are calls to worship. And uh, we pray that as we work through these, as the writer's intent was to not only call, but to call to worship the right God. And uh, I just pray that you'd speak to each one of our hearts by your spirit to convict, encourage, um, um, exhort, whatever you want to do. We need whatever you have for us because we don't want to be the same after we leave today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Psalm 95 is a call to worship. It begins in verse 1, O come. It's the first thing you have to do. <laughs> Seems obvious and a no-brainer and something you wouldn't have to say to somebody, but the first thing you need to do to worship God is come into His presence. That's what He calls us to. Sometimes I think we expect Him to join us or come alongside us like He's our cheerleader, and it's the other way around. And so the, the writer here says, Come and let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the king, the great king, above all gods, little g's. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. At this day and age, during this time, and it's no different today, but we'll talk about that in Psalm 96 here, but people worship many different gods, and they were the god of locations or the god of attributes, and that's why they're little g's. They would worship the god of pleasure or the god of war or the god of um, love, and, and they had names for all these different gods, you know. Um, or they had the God of the highlands and the God of the lowlands or the God of the river or the God of the mountains, those kind of things, locations, geographic things. And they, they divided up God that way. And it was usually divided up in such a way that that's what their personal favorite was. So in other words, they worshiped themselves. Um, if this is what I love, then this is, must be God. You know, it's God to me. And we, we can see that happening uh, in our day and age. Nothing changes, nothing's new. Um, but here the writer says, no, he, he has it all. He's the God of the hills. He's the God of the, the lowlands. He's the God of the river. He's the God of all these things because he made them all. There are no little gods. There's only one God and he created it all. And so when we come to worship him, we sing joyfully because of the beauty that we see around us, because we see the work of his hand in our lives. 
And if it's not in our lives, we see the work of his hand in other people's lives. It doesn't always have to be us, you know. I can be, thank God and praise God for what he's doing in your life, um, how he's changing you, how he's blessing you, not just how he's doing with me all the time. And so we're called to that, and we're called to do it joyfully. And there are times when there's sorrow, but I don't know if it's an act of worship. There's oftentimes prayer associated with that and a, and a, and a pleading with God to come help us and to comfort us and things like that. And that's, that's good too. It shows that our source is him. If we're going to be comforted, it is by him. So in a way, it's an act of worship. But for the most part, we ought to be able to look at our lives and the lives around us and the world around us and be able to praise God joyfully because of all that he's done and because of all that we see him do. He's the initiator. He starts everything. In a marriage ceremony, we'll talk about this sometimes, and depending on the wedding or what the couples ask for, but sometimes we'll go through some certain scriptures that describe why we do what we do in a wedding. And a lot of people just go, and they don't know why there's a white dress and why the dad's walking her down. And, and, and because we don't understand the symbolism of it all, we kind of just are haphazard about it now. We don't take each other's name anymore. We hyphenate. We have anybody and their brother walk us down. It doesn't make any difference. We don't understand what, this, what the ceremony represents. Well, I want to help a little bit with that. The, the bride is the church, and she's dressed in white regardless of her background. Remember the day when they used to say, is she worthy to wear white, you know? And the implication was she was maybe a little promiscuous. The bride of Christ, regardless of her background, regardless of your background, if you're in the church, if you're the bride of Christ, you're covered with the righteousness of Christ. Your, your sins are made white as snow. So she's dressed in white and she comes down the aisle in white because she's new. She's walked down the aisle by the father, if there is one, sometimes there isn't, and I, I don't fault you for that. There's nothing you can do about that. But the person who is walking the bride down, regardless, represents the father, bringing the bride, bringing the church to the son, who is the groomsman, and handing her over to him. You see, it's a picture. It's a beautiful picture. The the joyfulness, the the thanksgiving, the 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 excitement of of, of worshiping God is, is, is that, that we're saved, that we're, we're being brought to the Son, that we're being married, that we're being taken, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing, and um, we need to get back to that uh, in a way. Um, we, we rejoice that we're all made by His hands and that every part of me is who He wanted me to be. Some of us don't like the way we look. We don't like the way we our height, our width, <laughs> the amount of hair, whatever it might be that's frustrating to you. Um, I'm who God made me. Now my character and personality can change. That part is being conformed into the image of Christ, but the vessel that he's used, that's by his design. That's the inward work of the heart that God's interested in. So we come joyfully to the rock of our salvation. We come with thanksgiving um, we're loud about it. Several of our songs were loud this morning on purpose. We shout to the Lord, you know. It's exciting. I mean, we see in the Old Testament them all gathering together, all the, you know, the entire nation of Israel singing and shouting, and, and you can hear it. Now, I can't imagine everybody in the crowd was shouting. Maybe there were some that were a little melancholy that day and didn't feel like shouting at the top of their lungs, but the voices of those around them shouting lifted them up. That's why we come together to worship. 
Some of you don't, I don't feel like singing today. I mean, I want to, but it's in my heart, but I don't feel like making noise. I just kind of want to sit in the presence of the Lord, you know, but you can hear the people around you shouting, or you can hear the worship team shouting to the Lord and it boosts you, it lifts you up. What's supposed to anyway. That's the idea. We shout not only for ourselves and for our own ears, but for those around us. It's one way that we declare who he is on this earth. Uh, We talk to people one-on-one about the saving grace of Jesus Christ, or at least I hope we all do. We tell people about our salvation and that they can have that same salvation, and we spread the gospel. We spread the good news. We're all called to that, but that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is just you worshiping in your own life, and the people around you seeing you worship, regardless of your situation or circumstances that you're in. I think that's the most telling and the most impactful Uh, ministry or witness that you can have is when you're worshiping God, maybe when things aren't absolutely perfect, who wouldn't worship God as they got their new job that's going to pay them twice as much as their last job? It's the one who worships God when they lost their job and wonder what the new chapter in their life is going to be or how God's going to work this out and they worship God with joy through that. That's a testimony. We're called to that. And so he doesn't pull any punches. The writer of Psalms 95 says we need to all come, all of us, and sing to him joyfully with thanksgiving, shout out loud. He's a great God. There are no other gods. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, it says, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Give thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. This isn't anything new. We're all called to this and always have been. And sometimes we just need to be reminded of that. Verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. He's calling us to worship in a way that makes our physical appearance in submission too. To bow down before him because he's our maker. That's the reason. He says in Genesis uh, or in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm way off. Um, Genesis 1 verse 31. Then God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. When we worship before God, our maker, acknowledging him as our maker, um, it helps you with who you are, with who you see in the mirror. Uh, It helps with what God's doing in your life. It helps you understand if God is my maker, he's the one with his hands upon my life and he's forming me and making me. I have to be pleased with that. I don't have an option. If I acknowledge God, the creator of all the universe, as the one who's making me, It keeps my criticism down of myself. It causes me to let and to enjoy what God is doing with me and how he made me. I can begin to be pleased and not proud, but not embarrassed by the way God has me, uses me. I'm, I'm timid. I don't like to talk in front of people. That's okay. I'm loud. I wish I wouldn't talk so much. That's okay. God's made us that way on purpose. You look at all the disciples and you look at all the different ways they ministered and their different personalities and, and all. And, and 
You know, some of them are called sons of thunder, <laughs> loud and obnoxious and always pulling the attention of the room, you know, kind of thing. Not afraid to come out of the upper room filled with the spirit. And who's the first one to, to yell? Peter's. He's always running his mouth, but in a good way this time, you know, God uses that. Peter always ran his mouth before, and a lot of times he stuck his foot in his mouth many, many times. But when filled with the Holy Spirit, God still used that same temperament, that same attribute that was embarrassing before in the flesh, is now made beautiful in the Spirit. And so God wants to do that. And so the worshiper, or the, the, the leader here, the writer of Psalms says, I want us to worship and kneel before our God. It's a place of humility because he's our maker. And then he uses this metaphor, we're the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. He calls us sheep many times throughout Scripture. Jesus likens himself to the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And we're supposed to be sheep. Now, they've turned the word sheep, and even we can use it in the wrong way. You know, those who just willingly follow blindly. Bunch of sheep. Well, yeah. We can be that. And for the, for the most part, see, here's the thing. I think we're sheep anyway, regardless. We're just following different people in this world. Some people are following the dictates of their own heart. Sheep wandering around, falling into the river, getting saturated with water and drowning, falling into the crags of the rocks. You know, you can't change that. We have very limited perspective, very limited understanding, very limited wisdom as people. And so we are followers or we get ourselves in trouble as we follow ourselves. But if you follow someone who knows the terrain, who's higher than us, who's wiser than us, who commands a staff and a, and the, and the shepherd's crook to save us, that's someone you can follow. You can trust someone who's willing to stand out there in the field with you who's protecting you against wolves, who's leading and guiding you into good pasture, into still waters of your life. We're called to that, to follow. So we are a sheep if we'll, if we'll submit, if we'll let him. It continues in verse 7 on. Today, if you will hear his voice, and there's a call in there. The writer here just hopes we listen. All the things he said are an assumption that everybody's going to want to join in and worship. But maybe as he looks around and says this out loud, he sees some people kind of listless and halfway paying attention. And Today, if you'll hear his voice, there's always an if, and it's always your responsibility. Do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The interesting way to end a call to worship, you know, it seems to switch gears right there in the middle from worship and joy. And he doesn't understand those who know God. Why wouldn't they? Well, he tries to answer his own questions. It's probably because they have a hard heart because they won't listen. I've tried to call them. I want them to follow me. They've seen my works. They know my works. And yet at the end, he says, they don't know my ways. You know, 
There's a lot of unbelievers that I know who know the story of David and Goliath, who know the story of the Red Sea and Moses. They know these stories. They know the story of the cross, but they don't understand the way. They can regurgitate everything they've learned in Sunday school since they were a kid, but they never got the heart of the message. And that's a very sad thing. They never took the time or maybe it was taught in such a way that that wasn't important. It was more about learning the story than it was about learning what was happening in the story and why it was happening in the story. The Red Sea was not to show some neat way that God made a way of escape. It was to foreshadow and to show us that God is for us and not against us. His way is that he's going to be there for you regardless of what kind of danger you find yourself in. I've, I've, I've always, I'm always going to give you a way of escape if you'll take it. Always. And so we have Red Sea moments in our lives, but we never make the correlation. We never put the two together. We never see our back against the wall and find out, maybe there's a Red Sea option for me to escape this if I'll take it. Because they were never taught to apply these stories in the way that God would have them in their own lives. Maybe you've got a Goliath in your life, but you know the story of Goliath, but have no idea that you're the one that can pick up the stone in the name of the Lord and defeat that giant by his hand, by God's strength, by God's willingness to do so in your life. We misunderstand. And so although we've sort of listened, we've never heard is the idea. See, the nation of Israel, when they got led out, what he's talking about here is they were led out by this pillar of fire and pillar of smoke. They followed. It was almost a direct shot, probably 10 days tops to get to the Jordan River from Egypt to come up and cross it, just go across it. And he was even going to stop the water of the Jordan too. Well, they sent in some spies first to see what the land was going to be like. And they send in 10 spies to see what this land on the other side of the Jordan that God was taking us to. Eight of them came back and said, there's no way. There's no way we can win. There's no way we can have success here. God has brought us out to kill us. That was their perspective and their understanding from what they saw with their own eyes. This is complete danger. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb said, no, we can do this. Because God's going to do this. It has nothing to do with our strength. It has nothing to do with us. It has to do with everything he's shown us in the past. We've seen his works. We know his ways. We can cross this Jordan. We can live in this land of promise. I know that God will do this. And they understood that, but most didn't. And he says, I'm not going to let this people go across into this land of rest because they're not going to trust me. They don't trust me. They can't cross because they have unbelief. And so he, it's almost as if the psalmist is lamenting over this. He's grieved. And he's grieved because all I've asked you to do, the psalmist says, is to come worship joyfully and understand how you've been made, that he's a great God. He's above all the little gods. And as he thinks about these things and calls all these worshipers to worship, he realizes most probably won't because they don't know his ways. And it's saddening to him. 
Now, Psalm 96 and 97 and 98, we believe the next few Psalms here are about the millennial reign of Christ. That's a thousand year reign of Christ. And if you're new to Jesus and new to the Bible, you'll get a taste of that, but definitely not an in-depth understanding of that today. In verse 1, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations and wonders among all the peoples. God wants to give us a new song. That's that initiation I was talking about with the wedding. When the bride comes forward with the father and is brought to the the son or the bridegroom that represents Jesus, and they stand there when we do the vows, when we do the rings, even before the whole ceremony, the guy gets on his knee. Because the man, Jesus Christ, who's represented in the marriage is to be the initiator of all things, and the bride is always to be the responder, always. And when the bride responds to the, the groomsman or the future groomsman and says, yes, I'll marry you, I'll take your name. I will decrease. You will increase in my life. I will lose my identity and gain your identity. That's the reason we do all these things. And that's the reason or the lack of wisdom or knowledge about the scriptures, why we don't do those things as much as we used to. Because we don't understand why we do them. I think that's a, a tragedy. But nevertheless, it's just the way it is. When we sing a new song to the Lord here in Psalm 96, it's because God's done a new thing in our lives. Our worship is a response to what God's already done. It's never meant to be the initiator. Maybe if I worship louder and stronger, God will finally show up in my life and do something. That's not what worship's for. Worship is to praise God for what he's already done. He initiated the contact. For God so loved the world while we were still his enemies, that he gave his only begotten son. That's the initiation. I'm going to send my son to die on the cross for your sins, regardless of how you feel about me, regardless of whether you know me, I'm doing it because I'm the initiator. Your response is, thank you. And you worship because of what he's done. Sing a new song to the Lord. I like the old hymns. I do too. Nothing wrong with singing those, but he's not done giving us songs. He's still working. He didn't stop working in the 1600s or the 1400s or the 1200s or the whatever hundreds. He's still doing amazing things with people all over the world today, tomorrow, decades and from now. He'll be moving, provided he doesn't come back. Even then. And so people are writing new songs about the things that God has done in their lives yesterday. I got to write a song about it today. We should all have new songs. I'm excited about the Jesus revolution moving, coming out, you know. I don't know how accurate it'll be. We'll see. They're never perfect. That's okay. I think they do chuck probably a little bit of an injustice there as I watch some of the trailers, but because I've heard him talk about the moments and how he and Kay would drive down to the beach and pray over the hippies and all that and just beg and hope that God would bring them and all that. I don't know that it was so much that he had to be talked into it thing, but that's okay. I'm excited about that, but I don't live there. I'm excited what God did in the 60s and the 70s when the hippies became believers in Jesus Christ and were sold out for him. Amazing work of Satan had been turned into an amazing work of God. 
as Satan was luring the kids into drugs and being despondent about the world and their hope and their prospects, Jesus stepped into that hopelessness and brought beauty and light and hope. It's a wonderful thing, but he's not done doing stuff like that. He's still doing these things. He's still working. And so there's a new song to be sung every day. And I want a new song in my life. I don't want to remember what God did back in 1989 when he saved me. And I accepted him. I can sing songs about what he did last week here at Calvary. I'm excited about these things. The texts that Jenny and I get, the emails that we get, the conversations we have on the phone from people who can boast about what God's doing in their lives. It's exciting to us. We praise God for those moments and those things that are shared with us. And in our own lives, we can see God doing a new work and and all. It's wonderful. So we have new songs. And so the psalmist here is saying, sing that new song. Sing it. Enjoy it. Praise God, declare his glory. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When we sing these songs, when we proclaim the good news, when we declare, that's us being witnesses. That's part of our witness. When my mouth is shut, when I refuse to sing, when I refuse to read or talk about Jesus, we're not fulfilling what God's called us to do. We're called to declare. We're called to be different. We're called to stand out. Sometimes we are reluctant to be the declarers of God's good news because of how uncomfortable that would make the situation. We know it. But why is it uncomfortable? It's only uncomfortable because there's an unbeliever. If you were with a believer who knew Jesus and was madly in love with him like you are, talking about Jesus isn't uncomfortable. It's only uncomfortable when there's an unbeliever. That can't be how we live our lives. That can't be how we walk our walk. It's got to be around unbelievers so that they can hear the good news. I was uncomfortable talking about Jesus with many people who tried to talk to me about Jesus. I made it uncomfortable. I made it hard. I was resistant. I pushed back. I argued. I avoided them. Ghosted them, I think is what we say now. We, I ghosted them. You know. I knew where they were. I knew when they were coming, and I would make sure I wasn't there. You know, That they'd find me. And I got saved because of their diligence. Because they weren't afraid of me. They weren't afraid of me making it hard and uncomfortable and difficult and ghosting them. You see, he hasn't called us to a spirit of fear and timidity, but one of boldness and power. Verse four, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. And all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Never forget that. He's to be feared above all these other gods, these other gods. uh, And we'll talk about this when we get into 97 a little bit, but these other gods that keep coming up, these little G's, well, they're not. He says they're just idols. And what an idol is simply something that you've placed as the master passion of your life. It is the most important. It's what you talk about. It's what you think about. It's what you do. It's what makes you, it's your identity. 
That's your idol. And we don't necessarily have names for them anymore. We don't call them. They used to call them Zeus and, you know, um, Aphrodite and, and all these things. We don't name them anymore. We're too lazy for that. Now we just call them what they are. Or we just live it. But that's who we worship. That's what we do. Those are the little G's. He says, they're just idols. They're just things that are in the way. Those are things that are keeping you from the one who created all things. Verse 7, give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Those are some of the things we give to him. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. He wants us to come in a place um, of holiness, of a place of obedience, of a place of... of, uh, looking like him and, and being like him in our lives. We're, we're not called to, to come and worship in sin, unrepentant sin. We're called to come in holiness. Those are preparations that we make before we come to worship him. I think we're a little flippant about that sometimes. We just come and begin to sing because that's the next thing, but we haven't dealt with anything in our past or the days or the weeks before we've come to worship him. We just do it. And see, that was the problem with the nation of Israel. When Jesus came the first time, that was the problem with the temple worship was people were coming because that's what was written down. That's what they were supposed to do. But they didn't actually do the preparation. Minds were distracted while laying hands on the sacrifice to pass their sins onto the sins of the animal. And then the animal was crucified or killed in a way that would cover over the person's sins. Minds wandering, thinking about other things, but doing what they're supposed to do. Everybody can see them putting their hands on the animal. Nothing's happening. There's no repentance. There's no, there's no acknowledgement of wrong in their life. They're just doing their thing. And then they go kill the animal and they're done. And everybody congratulates them. You know, so glad you're here at the temple today. So glad to see you all. Yeah, you know. But nothing took place. I just want to pause for effect there. I don't know everybody's heart in the room. I don't. I'm sure 99% of us are here to worship God and to focus on him right now and to read his word and to receive what he has for us. And we've prepared with prayer, but there's a 1% chance that you're going through the motions. You were wondering why you weren't greeted. You're wondering if everybody saw you. Have I made my appearance? Is my wife going to leave me alone now? Is my husband going to leave me alone? I came, I did what he told me to do. There, I was at church. What more do you want from me? Because that's the nation of Israel's attitude the first time Jesus came. And it was worthless. That worship was worthless. In fact, it's several times in the prophets, God would speak through the prophets and say, you know, just stop killing animals. The whole point of the worship, the whole point of the sacrifices, the whole point of doing all this was to get your heart right with me. To get your, but you're not even paying attention. You're not even doing what you're supposed to be doing in there. Nothing's happening internally. It's all external. I don't desire the blood of bulls and goats. That's not why I'm doing this. I'm not hoping I go to a river of blood today. I'm not hoping that there's a big attendance at church today. I get so tired of the numbers game. Mega churches, fine. Are they worshiping in spirit and truth? 
tiny churches. Oh, we had 100 people today instead of the 25 we normally do. God's really at work. Maybe, maybe not. He's, worship, he's looking for people to worship him in spirit and truth. It's very easy to fall into, even in modern-day Christianity, and maybe especially in modern-day Christianity, into appearances only, attendance only, but nothing's happening in the heart. What is pleasing to God but a broken and contrite heart? I don't want the rivers of blood. I don't need the attendance. That's not a proof of a ministry being successful at all. The fruit of the Spirit in someone's life is the proof. The proof of your walk with Jesus Christ, whether it's appropriate or balanced, is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. Is that coming out of you? Is an unnatural amount of love flowing from you? Are you loving people with an unconditional love and it doesn't make any sense to you mentally or even your heart, but there it is. It's coming out of me. That's the work of God through your life. That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit. That's the evidence of a balanced walk with Jesus Christ. If it's not, examine yourselves. I always need to examine myself. I study for Bible studies every Sunday and for every Sunday and for every Wednesday. I've been doing that for decades now. You talk about someone who needs to be careful. Because I can throw the text out. That's easy. Making notes, no problem. Cross-references, with, with my eyes closed. But if my heart's not there, if I haven't experienced the text for myself, and if I haven't worshipped God in my study time, what a waste. And so I'm not telling everybody in the room to examine themselves. I'm telling myself as well. Always be on guard against religion. Against religion. Oh, that is the death of your walk with Jesus is religion. Ritual. Ceremony. It killed the nation of Israel's worship. It'll kill ours as well. We have to watch ourselves. So he says, give. Give with a glad heart, with a pure heart. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Verse 10, the world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Now, this is where we get that millennial reign of Christ idea in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, describes it. This is after the great tribulation, seven-year period of God's wrath being poured out in a Christ-rejecting world, chapter 6 through 19. After Jesus comes back, he sets up his millennial reign. And that's in Revelation 20. It's a thousand year reign of Christ. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witnesses or witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads nor on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. 
So when the psalmist here writes about this, say among the nations, the Lord reigns, this is what he's talking about. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. We're looking forward to that time. We don't have much information about it. Revelation 20 is about all we have. There's a few hints throughout the prophets of what that time will be like. Like when it talks about the child playing with the viper and the lion and the calf lying down together and so on. Those are all images of this millennial reign of Christ. We understand there's a lot of peace, but there's also a lot of judgment. There's a lot of um, sins just not allowed to move. How he does that, I don't know. It says he rules with a rod of iron during that time. Must be rough for those that want to be in rebellion, I guess. Either way, I take a look at this millennial reign of Christ, and I want that reign to begin in my life now. I want him to rule and reign in my life. I want him to rule with a rod of iron. I don't want to allow sin to happen in my life. I want to rule that way. It's possible. It's, I'm capable but I don't let it. I don't want it to. I judge it quickly in my life. Verse 11, let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and all its fullness. Let the field be joyful in all that is in it. And all the trees of the woods will rejoice before God or before the Lord. For he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. He's excited about that moment. I mean, so many times in the Psalms we've been reading about, oh God, how much longer? When is this going to happen? In fact, it was just last week we went through that little emotional gymnastics that we can go through. Ha, I mean, God, you've got to come soon. There's so much evil in the world. Do something, you know. Well, this is it. Here he comes. Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitudes of the isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. His attributes are clearly seen, Romans tells us in chapter 1. It's obvious. I don't think many people want to acknowledge that. Many people like to, and he's going to move into that in verse 7 about how all the other idols have popped up in our lives. We worship the creature rather than the created or the creator. Um. In Romans 1, verse 20, it says very clearly, for since the creation of the world, his, God's, invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. We don't have the verbiage. I remember that in first class I took on my way to trying to blend... Uh, <laughs> Higher education with Christianity is not a good blend. It didn't work. But them explaining that there really is no way for man to proclaim whom God is because God's above all languages. Is, you know, when you say a word, you're already deficient in your explanation of who he is. It can't, when you talk about love, you can't quite possibly understand and, and all these things. And 
they basically, what they were trying to get at was the word of God just barely, just barely touches upon like a, like a monkey, you know, touches upon its vocabulary. Uh, it's really disconcerting. The whole experience was poorly done, but that's not true. That's why it was poorly done. These are the words God gave us. Maybe there is more. But God gave us what we needed to express how we feel towards him. And to say that's not enough is to say that God didn't give us enough. It's wrong. It's faulty in its logic. It diminishes. It brings frustration. It brings all sorts of things into our lives that cause us to feel like, well, I don't even know why I waste my time. Well, isn't that just the enemy's way? Why waste your time with words when they won't work? Well, that's true. Unless it's not true. And so when our words fail us, perhaps, and we wish we could say more, we don't know how to say love strong enough. He says his attributes are clearly seen in creation. So maybe words fail us, but when we look at something soaring, or we see the majesty of something, or we see the size and the scope, I mean, anybody that's gone through Colorado to look at the mountains, and I only pick on those because those are the ones I'm most familiar with. You know, the Alps are amazing. I flew over those. Now, that's a mountain chain. Gee whiz. I remember flying over the, the Alps and looking down, I'm like, okay, as far as I can see to that horizon, out that window of the plane, and as far as I can see out there, it's nothing but giant mountains. I mean, from that way to that way. And can you imagine? I mean, then, then what if we went down right here? That'd be bad, you know? Never walk out of that place. And you begin to feel that awe. When you stand next to the ocean, you hear the power of the waves or the size of it for the first time. You're like, gee whiz. saying no farm pond, you know, kind of thing. Definitely not in the Midwest anymore when you see those things. It's amazing. You feel that sense inside of you. God gives us those things so that his attributes can be felt. You can experience him, you know. Every one of my kids who have had children now, when they hold that baby, never experienced anything like that before in their lives. They've never loved or experienced that kind of love ever until that moment. And you hold that child and you're like, I'm going to kill everybody that wants to get near this thing. You know, there's just such a passion for this child, such a love. And it doesn't know you from, I mean, it does, you know, does what it does, but you're not loving it because of what it's doing for you. You just have this love for it. And all of a sudden you begin to experience one of the attributes of God. You can understand for the first time, you know, this is how God feels about me. And I'm a mess. Babies are a mess, you know, but he loves me with that kind of passion, you know. And so from all that, that experience described in Romans 1, Worship. But all the earth rejoice. We're the only ones that struggle with it. Of all creation, trees don't have a problem worshiping God. The grass doesn't. The animals don't. 
the ocean, the mountains, everything that God describes, and they're all worship and proclaim his glory. The only people that have the only thing that has the only creation that has the option to do or not do is us. So when we worship God, all we're doing is joining in the chorus. It's already been going on. We're just agreeing with what we were made to do. And when we're not, that's when we're miserable. Because we're not doing what we were made to do. Verse 7, let all, the, let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. It's a funny way he puts that. When you first read it, you're like, is he causing all the idols to worship him? No. I think I alluded to it earlier. When you have something in your life, it's your master passion. I don't want to pick on something because then someone will feel like I targeted them and I didn't. But this is my thing. I'm known for it. Everybody says, now there goes, there goes so-and-so. That's the greatest. I don't want to, I don't, I'm going to hurt someone's feelings. You can imagine. Let's just leave it at that. You can imagine what that might be. Maybe you're in your own mind going, well, I hope he doesn't say sports, you know. <laughs> Sorry, did I do it? I did it, didn't I? <laughs> it's a big game today. Yeah, there is. So what? Is that your master passion? Is that what you're known for? Are you known because you love Jesus or because you love the Chiefs? You know what I mean? No, 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 he's got a shirt on here. I didn't mean that at all. I'm excited for the game. I'm watching the game too. I'm going to enjoy it. It's at 530. I know when it is. I'm going to be ready at five. I, okay. So sorry. It's not my intent. You're here worshiping God. So there you go. Obviously master passions right here in front of us, but pick on anything else. It could be anything. It can be love. Maybe that's the most important. Maybe Eros kind of love. You know, um, it could be anything. Violence. I love violence. I love watching this. I love doing that. I love being a part of that. I love violence. I love the God of war, you know. But you don't call it that. We don't say God of war. We just love MMA. I'm going to just offend everybody today. That's what I'm going to try to do. So that's the idea. What's the master passion? What's the idea? What's the, what's the most important thing? Well, when I have that, he's not causing the MMA to worship. He's saying, no, that's your God. In other words, you're worshiping yourself because that's what you love. And therefore, because I love it, I make my little altar out of it. Now you don't call it an altar. You'd never put candles and, you know, dolls or fruit in front of it or whatever it is that you do to make an altar. I don't even know. I don't have any altar, but you know, but there it is. Um, he's not asking it. He's saying, no, all you gods, all you little G's who've made your own gods in your own image, who've crafted your own gods, who've carved your own gods, who've made your life and revolved your life around worshiping this one thing. All you little G's, worship the big G. Worship the Lord. Get rid of all that. Or at least put it in its place. It's a thing. Eros is fine between a husband and a wife. Enjoy that, but you don't worship that. War is fine if there's... Righteousness over evil, absolutely. War away, but we don't worship it. It's a tool because we do it for the Lord or because we love the Lord, because we love righteousness. 
So he says that. And that's something you have to examine in your own hearts. What is the most important thing to me? What do I worship? Where are all my, where's all my time and my resources go to? It can be your God. They had gods for everything. Something to look up, maybe even research. Look at all the Greek and Roman gods. and They weren't just these things that they had encountered and decided this is a supernatural being, we should worship it. These things all had titles based upon what they represented. And so it was the other way around. They found the representation they wanted to worship, and then they made a name for it, you know. And we do the same thing for ourselves. We just don't name them anymore. In verse 8, Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all other gods. That's the song we were singing one time when I got the email the next Monday. I don't think we should be singing songs about other gods. There are no other gods. And they began to quote scripture to me. I'm like, we were just singing words out of Psalm 97. It was biblical. Oh, they said. I still don't think. (laughs) In Acts chapter 17, verses 23 through 24, Paul's aware Paul the Apostle stood in the midst of the Areopagus, Mars Hill, where all the gods were worshipped and everybody stood by their idol and this is the one they worshipped and they were glad to tell you all about their God. You know, it was like show and tell or science fair or whatever, you know. You walk onto this hill and you say, hmm, that's an interesting God. Tell me about him. I'm glad you asked. And they talk about their little God, you know, that they made. So Paul's walking through that. Men of Athens... I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Religion's not our friend, guys. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Couldn't have been a better description, right? The God we don't know anything about. No one's standing by that. There's no one standing by the unknown God thing saying... I'd love to tell you, but I don't have any idea what I'm standing next to. You know, by, by name alone, you should understand. I can't share it with you. Paul says, why don't I stand next to this one and tell you about him? So he gives him the opportunity. Therefore, the one, this one I'm standing next to, whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Blew them all away. The one that you worship and you don't know anything about, it's kind of your catch-all. In case we forgot any of the little gods that are out there, we got the God of the sea, the God of the river, the God of locusts, the God of war, the God of all these things. And anything else we forgot of, we put him in this empty bin over here. You know, it says, no, he's the God of all this, all of it, which only makes sense. God's in charge of all these things. And the psalmist wants us to worship him. It's a waste of time to worship the, the side issues or the side things. It's the main thing. Him. You who love the Lord, if you do, hate evil. It's okay. Hate's not a family value. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. We're to hate sin. We are to hate it. 
because God hates it. God hated it so much that he was willing to let his son die on the cross for it. And anybody that doesn't hate the sin doesn't love the son. That's the idea. If you love God, then you will hate sin. You can't have it any other way. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Light is shown or sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. A call to worship. God just wants us to worship him simply, but clearly. Getting rid of all the distractions, all the mud in our lives that can keep us from truly worshiping with pure hearts. He's just calling us to that. The psalmist wants us to sing. God wants us to sing. And we're made to do it. It doesn't get any more clear than that. When he says earlier on, if you have ears to hear, I I hope we heard today. I mean, I know you're here. I know that. You came. The motives of your attendance is up between you and God. Can't do anything about that. That's between you and the Lord. But if there needs to be adjustment based off of what God's word said today, make the adjustment. Hear what he had to say to you today. You know, um, you'll be better before because of it. You'll be closer to God because of it. You'll have a, a better worship time with God because of that, because you've listened to him and heard him. He wants to take us into a place of rest, into a place of freedom, into a place of liberty, a place of grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. He wants to give us that. But that's found in him, in the worship of him only. They can't be divided. Our hearts cannot be divided. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for these psalmists who wrote down the hard things. Who wrote down things that people would have to listen to and have to choose to either sing or not sing. To worship or not worship. And if they did sing, it had to be with integrity in their hearts. Because nobody knows the heart of man but you. So some could sing these songs and not feel it or not even believe it in their own hearts, but there they were and there they sang. And others sang and believed with all their hearts. And that's, you're the discerner of the heart of man. So this morning we pray that you would discern our hearts. The psalmist here today assumed and were kind of probing that maybe not everything was as it seems on the outside. And I think that's fair, Lord. Every one of us has some things that could be removed from our lives or at least knocked down several pegs of, of importance. That you might be exalted in our lives, that we might decrease and you might increase, and that the things of this world might fade away and grow dim. And that all we see is you. That our actions follow that that our words follow that, that our hearts follow that, that you are God, you alone. But I thank you for this morning and our time we've had in, to worship you, not only in song, but in prayer and also in your word. I pray that you'd receive our worship that was lifted up to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Have Glad to pray with you.